Well, good morning and welcome again to Impact Church. It's just such an honor uh, to be up here and share with you all. And uh, for the sweets challenge, should anybody else's multivitamins that are the gummy kind taste really good? Am I not the only adult who uses those? And he, thank you in the back. They tasted amazing. I was so looking forward to my gummy vitamin every day. All oh, is the best. All right, so I actually love when I am able to guest preach for you and come up here, which is ironic because I am an introvert, which that either surprises the heck out of people because you only see me up here doing things like this or giving announcements with a big smile on my face, but if you know me, you know that I am an introvert. I don't like crowds. I'm super awkward at parties. Pastor Eric can tell you that one. I could talk to no one for hours and be I'm like a blast to be around. Um, even as a child, I would never participate because I didn't feel like I was invited to do so. I just like didn't understand, and this, this right here, like felt aggressive to me. I didn't want to do that. And I had a third grade teacher confront me about it. Like, Michelle, we really want to hear from you. You know, when I'm asking the questions, I, I'd love to hear your answers. Well, why don't you ever answer? And I said, you didn't ask me. Like, it wasn't, I didn't think you want if you want to ask me, you can say, hey, Michelle, what do you think? I didn't feel invited in. I wasn't excited to do that. Uh, PE, team sports, dodgeball was my personal hell. Like, I hated all of that. It was, and dodgeball in the 90s, I feel like was different, like public school in the 90s. Now there's these policies about how you can't have games where children are the objects, right? Uh, so, but back then, it wasn't even like a Nerf soft anything. It was those textured rubber balls that like, when it hit you, it was a smack curd across the world. I, one more on my dodgeball rant. What board PE teacher came up with dodgeball? Just half you kids over there, half you kids over there. The object is don't get hit. Have some kickballs, I'll be in my office. Without a doubt, every single time, I would run to the back of the cafeteria gym combo, and I would wedge myself into the cafeteria tables. You know those fold-up tables? Years later, I would find out that was far more deadly than dodgeball. Like, I could have died under the cafeteria tables. No one cared. But I'm not a big joiner. I feel like I've painted that picture really well with my dodgeball trauma. I generally don't like attention. I have a difficult time joining in. I've noticed this pattern about myself, and I'm sure I can have a therapist earn a lot of money later in life if I ever care to figure out why. But uh, I, I do the opposite when it comes to how I read scripture, to a fault sometimes. I will put myself in the text, how I feel or, or what I feel should be there. And, and we should read scripture and be able to apply it to our lives. I'm not saying don't do that. But to a fault, I will put myself in scripture and I need to put my own feelings in check. I need to put down what I think makes sense to me. And, and I need to discover more what God is trying to tell me about himself and his story and his character, this natural tension that at least I know I have when it comes to reading scripture. It was just uncovered this week. Um, throughout these last couple weeks when Pastor Eric assigned Psalm 69 to me. Now I want you to know before we dive in, this is the most challenging sermon I have ever written. Psalm 69 is 
about 36 verses long, and some of you didn't even have to be told I was preaching today. You noticed when you saw all 36 verses printed on your chairs for you, and it took two pieces of paper to do that. We're going to be using those, so I'll give you a minute to find those, shuffle around. You're going to want those papers today. We're going to use those pens that you're handed. We're going to read all of them. We're going to take notes because so much happens in these 36 verses, I believe it will change the way you approach the psalm. I believe it will change the way you approach scripture. Uh, I know that it did for me. Um, One thing to note is that Psalm 69 is the second most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. It is quoted directly about six times by Peter, by Paul, the disciples, and Jesus himself. Other verses in this psalm are paralleled throughout the gospel. So remember, if we're looking at psalms, these are songs. They are to be sung. The psalms come with instructions in the beginning, like for the director of music to the tune of lilies. I don't know what that is, but, you know, David knew what that was, and hopefully the director of music knew what that was too. So as we read through it, consider that David is writing these lyrics, basically, with the intention that they would be sung for others to hear it. It's a little different than just telling a story or recording an event in history. These lyrics to his song are carefully and artfully thought out. David's words were intentional and inspired. So with long passages, it's helpful to break it up. Reading through this reminded me of my Shakespeare class back in college, like really picking apart the text. So I broke it up for you, and I'll give that away. I think it's labeled in there. Um, A song of desperation, a song of petition, a song of imprecation, and a song of praise. There are four natural sections. There's nothing official that calls them that. That's just something that I noticed as I studied these verses. It really helped me get through that. Uh, But one of these sections challenged me in a way that I have never been challenged before. So something that helped me get unstuck was to also reflect on what attribute of God was naturally reflected within these sections, within this psalm. So that helped me break that up as well, and we'll go through that, and there are spots to fill that in. What attribute of God is reflected in these psalms? So let's go. Let's just get right to it, because we've got a lot to cover. So first 12 verses are our first section, and I call this a song of desperation, and I'll just read through that once with you. David says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I've come into the deep waters, the floods engulf me. I'm worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me, for I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. From this section, I believe that we find our first attribute of God. God is love. We'll get there. God is love. David is clearly in despair. He is desperate crying for help, crying, 
save me, creating an allegory of drowning. He makes several references. Did you catch it? That's going to be our first use of the pens. Can you circle or mark every single use of drowning here? Waters, deep waters, flood engulfed me, miry depths, which is kind of a swamp marsh. I'm just going to count that. Miry depths and, and all this language of being basically overwhelmed. And it's ironic. I, I felt like uh, that he's talking about drowning, and then ironically he's parched, right? He's thirsty as he's drowning. So we'll come back to this. Just go ahead and mark that. Obviously, David is not actually drowning, but we have all heard someone relate their stress or their sadness or their burdens to drowning. I know I have, right? I've got so many assignments due, I'm drowning, or I'm drowning in debt. I'm so overwhelmed, I'm drowning. So it's clear that's the feeling here. It's the the ultimate feeling of desperation. You're in your last moments if you're drowning. If you're in that situation, if you're literally drowning, there's not much longer until you die. And that is how David feels. Well, what is David so overwhelmed with? Why, isn't he, why is he in such desperation? Well, he says it. His enemies outnumber the hairs on his head. I assume he's not bald. Like, that's a lot. I would, I would think so. Um, I'm Italian. Got a whole situation going on here. If my enemies outnumbered the, the hairs on my head, that would be pretty incredible. Uh, so not just any enemies, people without cause. I thought this was powerful. He must restore what he did not steal. This is a time in David's life where he was hated wrongfully. This isn't a post-Bathsheba psalm. It says he was a foreigner to his own family. This could be after David was maybe anointed as king, which sparked a lot of jealousy uh, from his brothers. He stepped up to fight Goliath, a huge enemy, um, and his brothers were jealous then. It could be when Saul was king and going after him. But maybe you've already realized, some of you here, uh, this isn't just about David. Psalm 69 includes verses that are considered messianic psalms. That means they speak to the person and life of Jesus Christ. And while we see this isn't true of the entire psalm, I do want to make sure you see that, David's going to bring in notes of his personal sin here. He talks about his sin and his guilt in verses 5 through 7, uh, and we know Christ was without sin. But Jesus himself quotes Psalm 69, 4 to his disciples in John 15, 25. He says, but this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. See, he's explaining to the disciples to be prepared. His enemies will hate them and without reason. Another quote in John chapter 2 uses Psalm 69, 9. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house consumes me. So that's uh, John 2.17. No one is filled with more zeal, more righteousness, more passion for God's house than Jesus. And finally, in talking about Jesus, Paul quotes Psalm 69.9, For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Romans 15.3. That's huge. Did, did you get all that? Matt, I, I always give Matt such a hard time with my slides. There's like 17. So hopefully you got that. Write them down. Take this home and explore that. Because already this psalm has been brought into the New Testament by the disciples, by Paul, by Jesus himself. That's not small. 
Like, that's huge, actually. These are messianic scriptures. This whole having enemies without cause concept, being wrongfully accused, mocked, that's Jesus. And what does Jesus instruct his disciples in moments before he quotes Psalm 69.4 about his enemies hating him? Well, John 15.12 says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. God is love. We know that that is what God has done for us. He more than demonstrates love or embodies love. He is love. We only know love because we are made in his image, and we have experienced what he has done for us. So God is love. That is our first attribute we can see from this psalm. That, that was kind of easy. That felt good. What's so challenging about this? All right, God is love. Let's tackle another nine verses. You guys are ready for it. You've done good so far. I've seen some of the pens. Some of you are getting it. All right, so this next section is called a song of petition. All right, so let's go through it, starting in verse 13. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your sure salvation. Rescue me from the mire. Do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me, from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love and your great mercy turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly for I am in trouble. Come near me and rescue me. Deliver me because of my foes. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. The next attribute I see from this song of petition is that God is merciful. God is merciful. The author, David, you can see he cries out, he petitions several times. You can go ahead and mark those. Look how many times he's using these phrases. Answer me, deliver me, turn to me, come near me, rescue me. I think he repeats all of those. David goes to God and trusts in verse 16 in God's great mercy that he will be answered. He trusts that. Despite David's personal sin that he admitted to in the previous section, David is confident that God will be merciful so he takes his situation to God. David repeats these petitions. It demonstrates his trust on God's mercy and deliverance. Do we have that kind of petitioning faith? Or do we try to solve our problems ourselves? Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll take a prayer request. Oh, yeah, pray for this. Have you ever been that deeply moved to petition God? Have you ever been that passionately trusting in his mercy. Have you ever really prayed that way? That was something that challenged me that I reflected on. I also noted again, as I'm sure you people already saw, there were those drowning imageries again. So I want you to circle and mark all of those. I don't think this is an accident. We've got mire again, depth, swallow, flood waters, deep waters, sink. Go ahead and mark all of those. We're still going to come back to those. But what points to God's mercy is again, we find verses that are credited as Messianic Psalms. That point to the person of Jesus Christ. So verse 21 here, they put gall in my food. 
gall is most likely a bitter plant in this case. Long story short, you don't want to eat it. And they gave me vinegar for my thirst, so more like sour wine. That scene is in all four Gospels. All four Gospels, when Jesus is hanging on the cross, Jesus is being mocked, scorned, disgraced, and in all four Gospels, you can see up here if Matt's got it up. Nice. Or you can mark all those down very quickly. We see this scene played out on the cross. What we're seeing is prophecy fulfilled. Think about how much time has passed from David writing this psalm, the Holy Spirit clearly speaking through him. This is prophetic, and we see it fulfilled on the cross. When we see a scripture quoted and cross-referenced this much, we need to pay attention. This is an unmistaken, intentional, direct connection to Christ on the cross for our sins. And in Luke's account, we even have this line from Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus is seeking mercy for his enemies who are mocking him. God is merciful. All right, still pretty easy so far. It's going to take a turn. So uh, this next section, 69, 22 through 28, I've called a song of imprecations, which in this case means curses or judgments. So let's read that. May the table be set before them become a snare. May it become retribution and a trap. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Pour out your wrath on them. Let your fierce anger overtake them. May their place be deserted. Let there be no one to dwell in their tents. For they persecute those who would and talk about, who wound and talk about the pain of those who hurt. Charge them with crime upon crime. Do not let them share in your salvation. May they be blotted out of the book of life and not be listed with the righteous. Ooh. Did anyone else feel the, ooh, that's how I felt. Like it was going good for a while there, and then, ooh, I don't, I don't know where to, where to put that. May they be blotted out of the book of life. Out of the, oh, the attribute of God on display is that God is just. God is just. Out of the 150 psalms, about 20 of them are considered imprecatory psalms. Psalm 69 is one of the biggest. In fact, it contains one of the largest sections of imprecations. And let's face it, these verses make us uncomfortable. Some would call these scriptures a problem. More liberal Bible scholars have even suggested that we take them out. C.S. Lewis who I greatly admire. You probably don't even realize if you're not familiar with that name. Some of you are like, C.S. Lewis, I'm there. Uh, he wrote The Chronicles of Narnia, The Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, Mere Christianity, The Problem with Pain. These books that have carried me through uh, my Christian faith and have connected so many people around the world with God. The Great Divorce, I remember it was one of the first books I ever read as a new Christian, a new believer, and it opened a door of wonder about what heaven could be like. But he also wrote something called The Reflections on the Psalms, which I hadn't read until preparing for the sermon. And he had some reflections on the imprecatory psalms, and he calls them, in his writings, the cursings. And here's a quote from his book. He says, It is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings in psalms with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. They are indeed 
devilish. All throughout his writing, he calls this psalm, Psalm 69 and others like it, devilish, evil, terrible, contemptible, profoundly wrong. I sat with that for a while, and spoilers, I do not agree with C.S. Lewis at all on this, and I'll get to why, uh, but I just want to be here in this moment uh, where we've come across something difficult. We've come across a difficult scripture. What do you do when you encounter this in scripture, in your life, in your devotional time? Do you skip it? Do you always take it literally? Do we put our reasoning and our feelings into the verses and the text? How do we know what to trust if even people who study scripture are split on this? Well, these verses are especially tricky because even when we go to look across scripture, which is an important step, if we're trying to understand difficult passages, we need to search for context. The first thing I'm sure your mind goes to, it went, mine went there, Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Luke chapter 6, 28, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. A new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another, even as I have loved you. Or 1 Corinthians, let all you do be done in love. God is love. God is merciful. What just happened? Our instincts and the reasoning of most who have a problem with these verses, this is basically how C.S. Lewis puts it, is to chalk up this set of scripture to David's personal imperfect character, that he is writing a song that where he's on the other side of history. He's pre-Jesus on earth. So, so maybe we just don't apply these verses. These are not emotional ramblings of personal David-centric vengeance. A couple of thoughts on this. First, David, his overall character throughout his life, you could argue he was the least vengeful man in the Old Testament. Go back through and read his, his interactions um, and his mercy that he actually gave to Saul and Nabal and Absalom and Shimei. But the strongest case we have that these are not personal imprecations, that these are not emotional or wrong, or as C.S. Lewis puts it, devilish or troublesome scriptures, is that they are quoted as prophecy. Remember, we pay attention to scripture when it shows up in other places. Romans 11, 5 through 10, Paul quotes directly the imprecatory scriptures of Psalm 69, 22 through 23, crediting David as the author. He talks about the remnant of Israel the Jewish people who God spared through grace, who accepts Jesus as Lord like Paul did. And then he says that there are some who will reject his son Jesus. And God hardened their hearts. Psalm 69 carries the prophecy of that. And it happens again in Acts, 1, in Acts chapter 1, verse 20. After hearing of Judas's gruesome death of hanging himself and that the land that Judas bought with the money he received from betraying Jesus would be forever known as the field of blood. No one wanted that land. Here's what Peter says. He quotes Psalm 69:25. That was prophecy fulfilled with what G Judas did. He says, for, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it. David having by the Spirit, we've already seen in the first two sections, he foretold the sufferings of Christ from his own people. And now, in this song of imprecation section, 
he also is foretelling the dreadful judgment of God upon them for it. This teaches us how to understand other prayers of David against his enemies. They're also prophecies of the judgment of God, not expressions of his own anger. And finally, we cannot ignore the words of Jesus himself who affirm the imprecatory psalms and prophecy of David. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. John 3.36. Again, complicated. We don't get to chop off scripture that we don't like. God is just. Whether we like it or not, whether it's easy to talk about or not, there is a cost. For our sin, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. Last point on this, I actually, if you saw me at all, I was like running back and forth from my seat earlier because another verse popped in my head and I, I wrote it down on my notes. Um, just thinking about loving your enemies, right? And that Paul talks about loving your enemies being like heaping coals on their head. Have you heard that one before? I had to look up this verse. So talks about being generous to your enemies is like heaping coals on their head. Well, why is that? Because that could go one of two ways. Your enemy sees that love. They see that generosity. They see the truth of Jesus Christ. And that coal, that burning coal, becomes this cleansing, right? Or they don't. They saw the truth of Christ, and they turned the other way. That is just as Jesus is saying. And then another verse popped into uh, my head that I looked up, John 15, 22, in that same section of verses that we already looked at where Jesus is talking with his disciples about how uh, he's being hated for no reason. Jesus said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. This is specifically for someone who sees that love and grace and mercy and sees Jesus for who he is and still yet turns away We should be moved by that. We should want to tell everybody about the love and mercy that is there for Jesus. Invite everybody to church on Sunday, especially for Easter, um, and to hear more about God's love, to be able to love on them in such a way that they would turn and embrace God's mercy and God's love. God is just. That is his justice. He never delves out injustice. All right. We're almost through the wood. We're almost through this. We're going to end with this. The final seven verses, a song of praise. But as for me, afflicted in pain, may your salvation, God, protect me. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. The poor will see and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his captive people. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them, for God will save Zion and rebuild the cities of Judah. Then people will settle there and possess it. The children of his servants will inherit it, and those who love his name will dwell there. Finally, what we see is that God is satisfaction. God is our satisfaction. He is fulfillment. Christ satisfies fully the debt we owe for God's wrath from those other psalms. God's wrath is entirely on Christ 
instead of us. We see this play out as Jesus takes on our sins and becomes separated from the Father on the cross. Matthew 27, 46 says, In about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is God's wrath. All of that ugliness that we just had to face in the previous verses, all of that went on Christ. We can't fully understand and appreciate God's satisfaction and fulfillment of the law if we don't understand the seriousness of God's wrath with that imprecation section. We deserve every part of the imprecatory psalm, but we praise him just as David does in this section because the debt for our sin is satisfied by Christ. Christ paid and took what should have been dealt on us. Jesus, Jesus was forced to restore what he did not steal. Jesus had enemies without cause. Jesus wept and fasted. His enemies mocked him. He became the song of drunkards. And finally, those words we marked earlier. Do you remember them? David's use of drowning imagery parallels Christ on the cross. David's use of drowning imagery parallels Christ on the cross. So uh, I was just reading through a little bit more about the crucifixion uh, and in preparing uh, through Lent and for Easter, and I came across uh, Professor Colleen Schreier, and she gives a regular lecture and wrote an article on the science of crucifixion. So here are just some notes uh, for what she said, how she explains it, that as Jesus is hanging... On the cross, the weight of his body pulls down on his diaphragm. This is true for for anybody who would have to die by crucifixion. The weight pulls down on your diaphragm. So the air moves up through your lungs, and it just kind of remains there. You can kind of take a deep breath and just appreciate that in this moment. Jesus must push up on his nailed feet every time he wants to excel or speak. We actually know he spoke seven times on the cross, including the verses that we read from Luke earlier when he's asking God to forgive his enemies or when he cries out from receiving God's wrath. That's Jesus trying to exhale and speak. Well, exhaling and breathing and speaking leads to a slow form of suffocation. Professor Colleen explains, Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood, resulting a high level of carbonic acid in the blood. The body responds instinctively, triggering the desire to breathe again. At the same time, the heart beats faster to circulate, to make available oxygen. The decreased oxygen causes damage to the tissues and the capillaries begin leaking watery fluids from the blood of the tissues. This results in a buildup of fluids around the heart and in the lungs. The waters have come up to his neck. And you could say Jesus suffocated and essentially drowned on the cross. The flood waters engulf him. We see evidence of this in Scripture in John. 19, when the soldiers went to check if the men hanging on the cross were dead, they pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of what? Blood, water. Jesus' human body suffered unmeasurable pain and took on the wrath 
and separation from his Father for you, for me, for all of those sins we've committed that have separated us. Psalm 69 is prophecy fulfilled, and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. God is love, God is merciful, God is just, and God is our satisfaction. We can be satisfied and thankful for God's truth in Scripture, and especially in Psalm 69. Let's pray together. God, you are an amazing writer. You make no mistakes. Your words are intentional. I thank you for your divine inspiration to David. I can't imagine the weight of these words on David as he wrote these songs, not fully even understanding what it would look like to fulfill this prophecy. And I I thank you for his courage and his dedication to you, God. He was a man after your own heart, and I get that now. God, I thank you for every single person who came here today. I pray that you will be with them throughout their week, throughout uh, their time in their devotional life. That we will seek you when your world, world gets difficult sometimes. We will seek you in your truth, God. We thank you for that truth, God. We thank you that we are satisfied. Christ satisfies us through his sacrifice on the cross. God, that is fulfilled. We see that, God. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.